Now, one thing that I've really uh, missed over the summer is the live sport. Glad that the Premier League is back in action. I'm glad that Leeds United are suddenly playing good football again and look like they might be going up. Um, another sport that, of course, we've missed completely uh, is uh, the sport of tennis and, and Wimbledon in particular. Now, when I was growing up, one of my favourite players to watch was a guy called Andre Agassi. Uh, he's a kind of scruffy-looking uh, guy. He had that tremendous mullet haircut, if you remember, sort of business at the front, party at the back, until he got bald and then he shaved it all off. Apart from the reason, that reason why he, was sort of, he didn't kind of fit the, the sort of mould, uh, he had a different style of play. He came into an era where there was a lot of big power servers, and these guys would just uh, sort of chuck the ball up, blast a serve down the centre of the court, point one and point over. And it was a little bit boring. But Agassi, had a, he had a different kind of game. His great strength was the return game. So one of those big powerhouses, they could hit the ball uh, down at him as hard as they wanted to. They think, of course, that they automatically won the point, just as usual. But he would sort of step forwards and kind of punch uh, the ball back quickly past them. The serve would be returned with interest, the ball whipping past their ears uh, before they'd noticed, and he'd undoubtedly win the point. It was great to watch, unless, of course, you were his opponent. Mark chapters 11 and 12 are a little bit like a game of tennis. Not in Wimbledon, but in Jerusalem. It's a, a kind of back-and-forth rally between Jesus and these big religious powerhouses of his day. Mark refers to them uh, in Mark chapter 11 as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're the rulers of the Jewish people. They're so very clever, and they want to maintain their top spot in the rankings. And they're greatly upset then when this scruffy, uneducated peasant called Jesus shows up, and people start to follow him. And people start to appreciate Jesus' teaching over theirs. Jesus is a threat to their authority and power. And in chapter 11, Jesus makes a direct challenge to them. He arrives on the scene and he clears out the temple, the seat of their power. But then the big guns uh, in the religious establishment, they come back fighting. And they serve up these challenging questions, a series of challenging questions to Jesus. And Jesus, well, Jesus steps forwards and he bashes them back past their ears. The first question is at the end of chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, you can see it there. Uh, it's uh, there in verse 28 of chapter 11. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus silences them with his reply. He, asks, uh, he says that he'll only tell them if they can answer a question about John the Baptist. Of course, they can't answer that question, and Jesus takes that game to love. And then Jesus tells this parable, a parable of tenants in a vineyard, where the tenants reject the authority of the owner and then even kill the owner's son to keep control of their domain. And it's obviously spoken about this corrupt Jewish leadership and their attitude to God and his Messiah, to his, their attitude to Jesus himself, that they will reject him and kill him, but that then they will regret that as God's judgment comes upon them. For the one they reject and kill will rise from the dead 
and become the cornerstone of God's new Israel, the church. It's a massive state to make, statement to make in Jerusalem. It's a huge embarrassment to these authorities. Jesus takes the first set. And then we heard the next question last week that came from two of these groups, from the Pharisees and the Herodians, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 12, verse 13. They asked this, should we pay our taxes to Caesar or not? It was a question which was a huge political trap. It was designed to get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities. They're very used to scoring points with these theological aces. But Jesus returns their surf with interest. He escapes the trap, and at the same time, he teaches his followers about how we should obey God and government. Another point to Jesus, their authority diminishes, and Jesus' authority grows. This whole section, then, is about authority. Who should you listen to and obey? Who is the source of authority for God in this world? On the one hand, there are all kinds of worldly religious figures that you could listen to who claim to know what's true. And on the other hand, there's Jesus. Who is the authority on the things of God? When our passage this morning, another opponent enters the arena, verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. The Sadducees. This is the first and only time that they're named in Mark. And they're a faction within that ruling class that Mark had mentioned before. These guys are a bunch of wealthy aristocrats. Many of them were priests. It's quite possible then that they had some beef with Jesus already, that they perhaps ran the tables that Jesus had overturned in the temple courts back in chapter 11. But Mark tells us one particular thing about them, that they hold to a shared theological viewpoint. They say there is no resurrection, that the grave is the final resting place. They believe that all that counts in this life was to live a good life and to leave an inheritance for your children, much as many modern people do today, of course. Now, as, as well as their thoughts on the resurrection, which Mark tells us here, we know from Acts chapter 23 that the Sadducees did not believe in the existence of angels or demons either. And we're not told exactly the reasoning for uh, this sort of rejecting of spiritual things, of spiritual life. But we do know that the Sadducees only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as truly authoritative. The rest of the Old Testament they treated as kind of, kind of helpful, perhaps, but not on the same level. And, and I guess those books, well, they don't speak as explicitly concerning resurrection or, or life after death as other parts of the Old Testament do. Now, if you, want a, if you want a modern comparison for the Sadducees, they are what we might call theological liberals. 
That is, that they believe in God. They're not, they're not atheist. They're very religious, in fact. But they only accept parts of the Bible as having authority, much like modern liberals today. They choose the bits uh, that they prefer. And similarly, they would reject the existence of supernatural things. They would see themselves as rational, as logical, and would say things, well, angels, demons, and the like, uh, they must be sort of purely metaphorical representations, not real beings. And just as for the Sadducees, for the theological liberal, the modern liberal, it is the idea of resurrection that is a particular sticking point. The idea of physical resurrection of human beings just seems completely bonkers to them. How is it even possible? You die, your body rots, and you stay in the grave. Everyone knows that. That's it, surely. No rational human being would believe that we'll all rise from the dead in the end. It's crazy. Now, though their question here centres around the general resurrection of all people at the end of time, it is, of course, much more personal and imminent for Jesus. Jesus has claimed that he himself will rise from the dead three times in Mark. Three times he said that explicitly. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, and Mark 10.33-34. And let me just read that last one to you. Jesus said to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Even more recently, at the end of that parable of the vineyard in chapter 12, Jesus has said that after the killing of the son, the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. It's pretty clear that resurrection is central to Jesus' agenda. Jesus believes not only that resurrection is possible, but that he will actually physically be risen from the dead very soon. Crazy, right? The Sadducees have picked their spot to aim for. Verse 19. Verse 19, they throw their ball in the air, they lift their racket, and they thunder down their serve right down the middle. Teacher. Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Ha ha, got you. 
questions based on the law uh, given by Moses. It's there in the Bible. It's called Leveret Marriage. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it is, as they say here in verse 19, that of a man marrying a childless widow, a uh, childless widow of his brother, in order to give children to her. Now, that law sounds very strange to us, and uh, if you've got brothers-in-law or sisters-in-law, you're suddenly um, thinking about that a bit too, uh, bit too much, I, I suspect. It sounds very strange to, strange to us, but it was, it was a good law for the society at that time. It was done in order to make sure that the widow, someone who was particularly vulnerable in those days, was looked after by the family, that she was protected from poverty and from abuse. It was a good law. Now, the situation described here by the Sadducees is undoubtedly theoretical, not personal. And frankly, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, the cops would definitely be looking at a woman whose seven husbands kept dying in mysterious circumstances, one after the other. Something's wrong here. No one's that unlucky. At the resurrection, there would have to be some sort of inquiry. The question is designed to make Jesus look ridiculous. Either he says that she's married to all of them, which just seems pretty stupid, she'd have this kind of harem in heaven, or he says she's only married to the first one, and so he will deny that the others are real legitimate marriages, something which he can't do because of what God's law says. I guess there's an option three, that he just agrees with what the Sadducees believe, that he proves, that this proves that this law of Moses is incompatible with the idea of resurrection. And that therefore resurrection is unbiblical, not to mention absurd. Now we can quickly see, can't we, that this isn't a genuine question. It's not a question that they... Uh, want an answer to. And sometimes people might do this to us too. They're asking this question to prove themselves superior on a theological point. They want to assert their authority over Jesus in religious matters. That's what they're really about here. They want to claim authority on the truth of God over what Jesus says, just like so many people want to do today. People often ask questions with this kind of cynicism, don't they? They're not really seeking an answer. They want to discredit you. More importantly, they want to discredit Jesus, his authority to tell them what's true. See, if you can find what you think is a contradiction or a falsehood or an absurdity in what Jesus says, just on one thing, then of course you feel that you can dismiss everything else that he says as well. That's the attitude of many people that you'll come across today. And it's the attitude of the Sadducee. That's what lies behind their question to Jesus. And it must just seem to them that they've just served a powerful ace. Yet look at how Jesus returns. Verse 24. Now, a popular caricature of Jesus is that he's kind of this sort of misty-eyed, soft and weak man. It's just not true. If you read Mark's Gospel, you just see that that's not true at all. He is gentle with those who need gentleness. 
but he is stern with those who need sternness. And here we see the sternness of Christ. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It's perhaps hard for us to feel the force of this. He's saying, you don't know your Bible and your view of God's too small. That's what he says. And this really hits the Sadducees where it hurts. Because those are two things, of course, that the Sadducees are quite proud about. Why is he just so harsh with them? Well, I think it's because these guys are powerful religious figures and people listen to them. They come under their influence. And these guys are teaching error which will lead those people away from God's truth and into falsehood. He's stern with them for their sake, but particularly for ours. And Jesus now explains the truth of the scriptures to them and to us, verse 25. For when the dead, uh, when they, sorry, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus teaches that they're wrong, that the dead will rise, and he's going to come back to that in the next verse. But first he's going to tackle their misunderstanding of the nature of marriage. He teaches that marriage is not an eternal relationship between human beings. It's merely an earthly one. That it's simply not the same in the age to come. Now, of course, as soon as we hear that, we're in our own minds, we're playing the video of our own uh, current circumstances, aren't we? Let me just say a couple of things on this. It's not uh, the main point of this teaching by Jesus, I think, but it's an important thing. Uh, can I encourage you to consider all the possible kinds of relationships or circumstances that people might be in? Just absorb that before uh, we see what's being said here. So some of you will be in uh, good marriages, and you might feel a little bit sad uh, about this statement. Others of you, though, will be in bad marriages and you'll feel greatly relieved. Others will be single and it may actually be a comfort to you to know that everyone will be in the same position in the new creation, that marriage is not ultimate. That truth allows us more reason to be content, I think, as single in this life. And others, of course, will be in second marriages, more similar situations uh, to this fictional woman of the Sadducees. For you, it might be a relief that the confusion of, of who you might be married to in, uh, in glory is answered for you. You don't need to worry about that, says Jesus. The reason is, though, that eternal life, resurrection life, is not merely a continuation of earthly life. It is of a superior quality like that of the angels. And in that life, the exclusive relationship of marriage is no longer needed. The intimacy of our relationships with each other and with the Lord Jesus will be better than the very best marriage on earth. Far better. The only marriage that matters in the new creation is the glorious one between Christ and and his church. 
And that is something for all believers in Jesus to really look forward to, whatever our situation now. Now that's important. Jesus has corrected their view of marriage, but here's the main point that he's making, that the scriptures have always taught the resurrection as a physical expectation of hope for God's people. There's great skill in how he answers them next in verse 26. Notice there that he, he quotes a bit of the scriptures from what he calls the book of Moses. That's a very unusual way to speak about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, it's the only time in the whole of the New Testament uh, that Jesus does so. Why? Well, it's an arrow, isn't it? It's to pierce the heart of the Sadducees. He's quoting their book, the one they accept, and he's telling them that they don't understand it. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus refers to Exodus chapter 3 here as his evidence that resurrection has always been taught in the scriptures. Now in that account in Exodus, God's people are enslaved in Egypt and God's calling Moses, he's appointing Moses as the man through whom God will rescue his people from the hand of Pharaoh. And here in a burning bush that does not burn, God introduces himself to Moses. And he introduces himself like this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, what's the point that Jesus is making here? Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead by the time this encounter with Moses happens. Yet God calls himself their God. I am their God, he says. It must be that though dead... They are in some sense not dead, but still living, still in connected relationship with the Lord. Jesus says, look, you missed this, you careful Bible scholars, that God calls himself God of the living. Those who trust him, well, they live, even though they die. What kind of God would he be if he only cared for his servants in this life, but could do nothing for them after they died. They know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. See, they rejected the resurrection because it seemed impossible to them, irrational even. But if God is God, of course he can raise the dead. It would be easy for him He is the God of the living and those that die trusting in him shall live again. And so they're badly mistaken in error. Quite wrong, Jesus concludes. And these opponents, there's silence. There's no comeback. There's nothing to say. In the question of who has the authority here, 
Who should we listen to on the things of God? There's only one answer. This is my son, the father says. Listen to him. Game, set. When is it match? Because it's one thing to teach that the resurrection of human beings is real and show that the Bible has always said that, and Jesus has done that. But is it true? It's quite another thing to prove it true, isn't it? Yet this is the astonishing claim of Christianity, that Jesus Christ did indeed prove this to be true. As the story continues, just a few chapters time, out of their jealousy, the opponents of Jesus will put him on trial and then nail him to a cross. They'll mock him as he hangs there. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Of course, they have no intention of believing. They don't want him as their king. He has no authority over us, they say. There on the cross, Jesus dies for the sins of his people to pay the penalty they deserve, to ransom them. But then he's placed in a cold, dark tomb. And for readers of Mark, Jesus' previous teaching, his claims that the resurrection is real and his specific claims that he himself will rise on the third day, well, those claims really hang in the balance, don't they, at that moment? Here's the moment of truth. And here's what happens. From Mark 16. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, the women went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. One pastor put it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Do you accept Jesus' authority? That what he says is true? Do you accept that he died for your sins on the cross and that he rose from the dead, really physically rose from the dead on the third day. If you believe that, then there is really good news for you.
for you this morning. That when he returns, you shall rise from the grave and be given a new body, one like the angels, to enjoy the most incredible eternal life with him. What better hope is there for a dying world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you particularly for this passage that we've been able to look at this morning. Oh Lord God, we recognise that there is much that we need to confess. We know that there is a heart within us, just like the Sadducees, who want to prove ourselves right over your authority. Father, we confess that we repent of that and we come to you and we want to recognise that you are the king, that Jesus is the authority in this world, our authority. But Lord God, we do thank you too that the, the truth of his words were proved by his own resurrection on the third day. Thank you that because Jesus died for our sins and rose again to new life, that when he returns, we too will rise and have new eternal resurrection life with him. We praise you in his name. Amen.